0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode of the Teacher Takeaway Podcast. You are here for episode 35 of season three. And this episode I will be hosting. It's Aaron here while the rest of the team has a break. We are diving into the inquiry question. How do we effectively engage with data? This is a huge topic. I'm very much uh, trending topic in education at the moment and i am joined for this episode by the wonderful amazing selena Fisk hi selena
1: hey aaron thanks for having me
0: oh it is an absolute pleasure and i have been so looking forward to this conversation with you and uh chatting all things data because i am a self-confessed data nerd so i am super excited to have this chat with you
1: great sounds good
0: Awesome. So for our listeners out there who maybe haven't heard of Selena or her work, I'll give you a little bit of an intro. Selena is a data storyteller who's passionate about helping others sort through the numbers to tell the real stories and lead positive change. Drawing on her 16 years teaching experience in Australia and the UK, she has developed resources to promote data storytelling in schools, including an online self-paced data course and three books published by Amber Press. Selena mentors system leaders, school leaders, middle leaders, and teachers in data storytelling, ultimately to benefit the young people that we aim to serve. Selena's book, I'm Not a Numbers Person How to Make Good Decisions in a Data Rich World, was published by Major Street Publishing in 2022. So, Selena, it's so good to have you on the podcast. Thank you for giving up your time and chatting with us.
1: No worries at all, Aaron. Let's get to it.
0: Let's get straight into it. I've just done your bio, but um, do you want to elaborate a little bit and tell us a bit about your um journey in education so far?
1: Yeah, so I'm secondary PE and maths trained and was a head of phys ed in what feels like a former life now. <laughs> and I've taught for 16 years all up. Uh, most of that time was in Brisbane in Catholic schools. And for about just under four years, I taught in the UK and that's where I was um, head of phys ed. So I was kind of, um, I guess, exposed to the use of data when I was teaching over in the UK and it really kind of, I guess, ignited my passion for it and I wrote a couple of books. And when I, um, I guess I I got to a point at the end of 2019 where I thought I need to either give this a bit of a go and see whether I can make it work full time um, because there seems to be a lot of people wanting support and wanting help in how to use data So I kind of um, stepped away from the classroom at the end of 2019, just before the pandemic, which was a very interesting time to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, you know, JobKeeper was a good thing and and we got there in the end. But, um, yeah, so now I work for myself. I'm self-employed and I'm a, as you said, I'm a data storyteller, but I also consider myself to be a grounded researcher. Uh, I am a researcher. I completed my EDD a couple of years back. And for me, this is about, you know, this is an evolving space. There's so much to learn. We're never going to stop learning about the way data can be used and used really well in our schools. And so I just feel really lucky that I get to work with awesome educators across the country every day um, and see what they're doing and how they're doing it and to learn from them um, as much as I try and share some best practice with others.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And and like you said, it's um, such a big thing that we do and how to make it purposeful and useful and meaningful for teachers. And I love that your book is I'm Not a Numbers Person because there's so many people out there that when they when we talk about that, they go, oh, I'm not a data person, I'm not a data person, I don't get the numbers. So talk a little bit about, um, yeah, how did that passion for data, um, where did it come from? How did it evolve over time?
1: Yeah, so the the book title is funny because I'm not a numbers person is what people say to me all the time mm. um, because, as you say, there's there can be quite a negative perception of it. Um, and, you know, just for the record, I have been told probably almost everything you could think of about data and why it's not good and what people think of it. Um, I've worked with people that have said data is a swear word or data is no longer a swear word. Um, you know, I say data and people go come or go running. So yeah, I've heard most of it and it doesn't freak me out too much because I guess what I love doing is hopefully just, I guess, shifting perspectives a little bit and just helping people see the impact that it can really have when we use it well and the impact it can have on young people. And ultimately, I'm a teacher and I love teaching and I miss the classroom. I, I just like getting on planes and talking about data more, I guess. Um, but for me, as I said, it, it really started when I was in the UK. And I'd come from a school in Australia where there was no data being collected in 2006. Like We were marking summative assessment work and that was pretty much it. Um, and I went into this context where I went in as head of phys ed and the previous pass rate for the subject was 26%. Even, even that idea of having a pass rate for a graduating class was foreign to me. Mm-hmm. And I was told on employment, essentially, that my role was to increase the pass rate dramatically over the next couple of years. So I went into this role knowing that there was a really clear data expectation of me and, and I guess the outcomes and the outputs. Now- there was a whole lot that was really negative and toxic about that environment um we were weekly and fortnightly having to justify intervention strategies that we'd put in place for different students we were meeting regularly with senior leaders you know and we we as the leaders of the subjects were being held essentially personally responsible for one metric that happened every 12 months and you might kind of wonder why I ended up going into this field, given <laughs> so um, given how bad it was. But while I didn't agree with a lot of that school-wide use and analysis and pressure, what I did learn really quickly was that I be I felt like I was becoming a more effective teacher. Like I I felt like I knew what my kids needed. I was more specific about my understanding of them. It meant that I was more targeted in my teaching. When I was able to target the gaps and the the areas that they needed to work on and then they got better at it, it was professionally rewarding mm-hmm. for me to be able to see the, sh- the change and the shift and that, for that to be really tangible. And then, um, I mean, I was working with year the 10 and 11 students and they got to the point where I was talking to them quite a lot. So I had students playing with my, I had this like prediction spreadsheet and they'd come and kind of say, well, if I did this sport instead or if I, If I got this grade here, would that bump me up to potentially the next grade boundary?" And they were really bought in, and and I saw them take a lot more ownership of their learning and the assessment. It, you know, it, it demystified the assessment that was happening in the subject. It wasn't something that was just being done to them that they saw as being out of their control. Mm. They were totally involved in partnership with me to try and get them the best results that we possibly could. And for them, as 15- and 16-year-old kids, that then allowed them to open up pathways into college and universities uh, and a levels that they wanted to do to be able to pursue the pathways in the future i guess that they wanted to to pursue so for me it was kind of that connection to kids and their involvement and how powerful that was and how professionally rewarding it was but then just what it what it potentially then meant meant if kids were able to achieve their goals and get the results that they needed and and what it meant for them after secondary school
0: yeah and, and I think what you've touched on there is the importance of the bigger picture besides the numbers, you know, that, that those numbers represent, like you said, opportunities for students. And like you said, it helps you understand your kids so that you can be a more responsive um, educator as well, when we really just don't look at it as numbers on a spreadsheet. And I know you talk a lot about being a data storyteller and data storytelling. So let's unpack that. What is data storytelling?
1: Yeah. Um, I love that kind of segue that you just um, used. And it's it's so true. Like I often say it's about the data, but it's actually not about the data. Mm. Um, it's like that's just a vehicle that allows us to know young people better uh, and to think about what they need from us. And it's absolutely about them. And I was in a session only a couple of days ago with some system leaders and one of them turned to me and he goes, we're actually not talking about data anymore. We're talking about like improvement. I was like, "Yep, yeah, that's that's exactly what we need to be talking about because um, it isn't about the numbers themselves. So I guess I my focus on data storytelling is really that merger. And I don't own the, the label by any stretch of the imagination, but that For that kind of idea of data stories is the merger of the narrative and the human aspect as well as the numbers and merging them together. And there's a really good uh, writer and book on this called Effective Data Storytelling if you are interested in it, and that's written by Brent Dykes. And he has worked with a few organisations in America, like some big companies like Sony, Nike, Amazon, around data storytelling. And one of the things that he says is that numbers don't motivate people, stories do. Mm. And I love that phrase and it's what I get to see every day that I'm in schools. It's the stories that I can share and I help them share about their students that actually really ignite people's interest in in the use of data like um and yeah and so for me i guess it's it's a real priority in our schools and i i ro- recently wrote an article about i actually think the way to boost the use and analysis and and the really great effective use of data in schools is actually through the lens of data storytelling because our teachers can buy into that because it's about young people it's about kids it's about what we do for them There are a couple of different ways that data storytelling, I guess, plays out. So, Brent Dyke's book is a really good example of how to, or it provides a really good framework for how to tell a data story if you're getting up and presenting to an audience. And that's useful because we kind of do that when we're meeting with parents, for example, or I work sometimes with school leaders and they're presenting to a board or there's leaders presenting summary data to their teachers at a whole staff meeting or a, a year-level team talking about data and wanting somebody wanting to share a summary. And that's that's really useful to learn how to do that well because we want to be able to, through a data story, we want to be able to motivate other people to change and to take action. Mm. So, you know, and I, I don't I'm sure you haven't sat through this, Aaron, um, but I've sat through a few um, data presentations where you sit there and it's just like data after data after like and just graph, graph, mm. graph, graph, graph. And by the end of the PL or the session, everyone goes, OK, yeah, like something that was interesting. But yeah, so what? And they leave. Yeah. Um, and that's actually not effective data storytelling because effective data storytelling leads to some sort of change or action on the other end. So there's that. There's the actually telling a data story. But what we do most often is we are engaging in that process of data stories, thinking about data stories as we're doing our work. And for me, I separate it into two questions. So when we're sitting thinking about our student results just in our tracking spreadsheet that we have or with our teaching team or with members of our faculty, I I structure that into kind of two big pillars and the first one is where we look at like what are all the trends and the insights that I can see in the data so what are all the things that I you know that stand out to me and then once we've done that and we can start to think about well what are the most important uh, what are the most pri- important priorities I guess or the the most important insights and trends it's th- then we think about well what do I do with that mm. information And so I really try and decode the thinking process for people. So rather than, you know, and I've sat in meetings where people have said to me, okay, just go and analyse your data. And it's not that simple. We don't have people who are super confident in how to do that or know Mm. what it looks like. But by decoding it and breaking it into those two kind of questions, I'd like to think that it's providing some scaffolding for teachers to start to think about, okay, well, I'm going to think about the trends and the insights first. And then I can think about, well, so what? What do I actually do about yeah. it?
0: Yeah. And I like I love what you said, Selena, about the idea of it's gotta to lead to something. It's it's no good having a data conversation or, you know, having a data story, but then we don't we don't act on it. You know, it's gotta to lead to some kind of I've noticed this, so what am I gonna do differently? What's yeah. the thing that I'm gonna shift and change? And I love too that you you touched on, you know, the idea of numbers, and I and I constantly talk about it with our staff. But we know that those numbers are people with real stories, yep. and it's it's up to us to kind of marry those two things together.
1: Yeah, the human absolutely.
0: side of things and yep. the data itself, and then not make excuses, but then go, okay, how do we put these two things together yep. and move forward to um to bring about positive change?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And one of the ways I sometimes, um, I'll be really honest, some people that I work with get really freaked out about the idea of that second question, like, what do I do about it? And and I've had leaders in schools say to me, our teachers are going to feel quite threatened by that, or they're going to think that we're trying to hold them accountable. And that's absolutely not the intention. It's It's even what I do sometimes it's is, is it possible to flip that second question into being you know if the first one is what are the trends and the insights in the data that I'm seeing the second one can be what do my students need from me because at the yeah. end of the day it's about what what's what are their needs and what are those gaps or what do we need to celebrate with them like there's also heaps of great stuff that we get to see in the data um but what do they actually need from us next and and I think that alleviates a little bit of the pressure and the ickiness around mm. okay I have to do something it's more about what do they actually need from me
0: yeah and i i do love exactly what you just touched on and that is the celebrations in the data mm-hmm. i know honestly in a lot of data conversations i've i have we straight away go to those or look at the deficits look at the things where we're not doing and i know when i lead data conversations the first thing we always do is go what can we celebrate from this yeah. Because it's so easy to look at things and go, we didn't do this. We didn't achieve this benchmark. This many kids haven't got to, you know, this target or that thing that we wanted. But there's got to be something in there, totally. you know, that, and it's worth putting our attention on that and seeing yep. that there are things that we can celebrate. And I think that also helps change that mindset. That data isn't a negative thing because we can look at it and go, wow. Yeah. This is awesome.
1: Yeah. And then like, we can
0: look at and go what and where to next.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's absolutely a, a misconception that data is negative or only and that mm-hmm. it's to identify gaps and things that we're not doing well. Yeah. But actually there are so many opportunities to see where kids have just kicked massive goals, and mm-hmm. it's a really great opportunity. Like I, I taught a student a few years ago, Jamaica, and I knew that she had been a C student in maths all the way through. She was working really hard. She was, she'd been trying really hard. Um, she'd gotten pretty kind of middle of the road, Naplan and Pat, uh, data like Pat results previously, but she was just working, 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 working. It was so hard, and she did this algebra exam of all things in maths and she got an A minus and it was like the first A minus she'd ever gotten in maths in her life. And it was in algebra of all things. So like Mm -hmm. it was pretty phenomenal, but like, We made a massive deal about it and we had a big class celebration and we just like massively fist bumped her. And you know, like we were, we just made a massive deal of it because it was massive and it was massive for her. Mm. And I just think, like, if we don't know that backstory of the fact that she'd been always getting C's and she was used to getting that and she worked so hard and it paid off, like, I don't know. I just, it actually makes me sad thinking that, like, if that stuff gets missed and not celebrated, that's actually really sad.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is really really sad, and I know you touched on it earlier about you know why you know the, the the big picture about data and why it matters. And so you know, let's unpack that. Like in your opinion, why why does data matter? Why is it so important?
1: Yeah, it's it's the um it's students seeing the change in themselves it's the ability for them to actually build confidence in knowing who they are and what their strengths are and what they can do and being able to really kind of recognize when they've done well. And it's an opportunity for celebration. And if it just builds part of their self-identity of who they are as a learner and a young person, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we're talking a lot about learning analytics, obviously, but there is so much other data that we have on our students, including say, well-being and When students are self-reporting well-being and that's then feeding into processes in the school where teachers and adults are having conversations with students about how they're self-reporting, whether that's high or low, or whether it matches what the teachers see or not, like there are so many learning opportunities in that that might have kind of, I guess, been missed had we not been collecting some of that information. Uh, so she's got real potential and real potential for schools to celebrate great effort that they've put in teaching teams. Um, and, you know, and I said this kind of at the beginning, but at the end of the day, you know, like that that year 11 exit pass rate for me, I, it was very clear. And the, the process in the UK was ruthless. But at the end of the day, in 12 months, when I doubled the pass rate from 26 to 52%, at the end of the day, I felt really good, like I'd worked really hard for twelve months, and I could see I could visibly see the change in results, and it was affirmation for me for how hard I'd worked, and mm. it was really professionally rewarding to be able to do that. But then to also think about like what that meant for those young people, being able to kind of go forward into college applications and needing a certain number of pass grades and all of that type of thing.
0: Yeah, and and like you said, it's it's the again, it's the story behind what that means what that data growth and that data improvement means number one for our students in mm-hmm. the opportunities that it's going to provide them because like you said their pass rates increase so their opportunities yeah. post-school are are bigger and are greater mm-hmm. but you touched on it too around it actually engages students in i guess being more t- able to take more ownership because they're very clear i know what i need to to work yeah. on i know i think back to when i was a kid and we we did assessments. I mm. number one, I never knew what the teacher was even looking for. Yeah. So how could I demonstrate it? Um, and I never knew what um what would warrant different gradings. And yeah. I think if I had have known that, I know for me personally, I would have pushed myself.
1: Mm. I would
0: have been it would have been easy for me to go, well, this is what I need to do. Totally. And I know, you know, for the, the staff that I'm working with, we're going on that journey of being very clear, I guess, around Um, what our expectations are and making that clear to our students and students being very clear going, this is what my next step is. This is what my next goal is. Um, And, you know, we have a part to play in that, but also giving students that responsibility. You know, we have those conversations where, you know, this is your next goal and I can do lots of things to help you, but ultimately you've Mm -hmm. got to take responsibility too and put put in the work to make that happen. But I think when we are able to back it up with data and go, well, this is, this is what your, you know, recent assessment has shown, or this is the trend and this is where to next. Like you said, actually empowers students to go, okay, cool. I know what I need to do. Yeah. And absolutely. then that leads to that success and that growth. And then, yeah. you know, further opportunities to, to build and move forward. I think, um, you know, it's remembering that why behind mm-hmm. what we do. We, why do we do anything? You know, yeah. I go to work every day because I want to make, a difference and I want to help my students grow. Yeah. And like you said, data is are just a vehicle. It's not the answer, but it's one way that we can be supporting that student growth and not just, I guess, stabbing in the dark and hoping it makes a difference.
1: Yeah, completely. And one of the, um, you know, as you were talking about young people being involved in the conversation, I, you know, I was thinking back to my favourite example of that. And and sometimes people assume that, you know, in my my story is senior Z fifteen and sixteen year old kids, and and I sometimes get people say, "Well, is involving students in the data, them like we or having those conversations with students, is that possible in primary?" And I have seen so many examples of prep year one, year two students where even in say prep, there's a school in Queensland that I was in and this teacher, it's in um, it's in my book, uh, it's in Data Informed Learners. There's a picture of these turtles and these stars and every student in the class has a turtle and a star. And on the turtle, I think the literacy goals are on, on the turtle and the numeracy is on the stars. So the goals on the for literacy were things like it's all sound letter knowledge. So it's the letters that they were trying to learn. And once the students were able to recognize them and sound the letters out. They were able, they were ticking this, the letters okay. off their little goal card. And for numeracy, it was things like, you know, skip counting in two and counting backwards from 10 and counting up to 20. And so they all had a couple of little micro goals each. Now that's a really different type of data, but it's still data, still mm-hmm. information. Um, and you know, you go back to your last question was, what does it actually mean? What's the benefit of it? We know that when there is a gap in the early years that that gap can continue and usually continues to widen throughout that young person's journey through school. So it's so important that in the early years particularly we are trying to bridge those gaps and we're trying to, I guess, decrease the width of, of ability because we want to be setting kids up for success long-term um, and they can absolutely do it and absolutely talk about it in a way that's you know age-appropriate to them, mm. of course, but they can engage with it.
0: Mm, absolutely like you said it is it is possible it just looks different
1: yeah
0: yeah and um it's i guess it's about finding what's going to work for you and your students so you know that leads into this next question really perfectly about what it looks like in practice so um what does a data informed teacher look like
1: yeah so there's so there's so much in this right um i guess for starters Somebody who's data-informed, they've actually got a plan. Like somebody who's doing this really well, they they know what they do and how they do it. So I, for me, I know those people immediately because I can go up to them in a school and I can say, so what kind of data are you collecting for literacy and how are you using it? And they can rattle off the school-based assessments that they have to use, any screeners, uh, any diagnostics, they can talk to how it's used and how they use it in the classroom, and they can do that for literacy, for numeracy, for other KLAs. In secondary, they can talk about what they do in their middle school PE class compared to their senior school, you know, maths class, for example. And they're, they're different, but people who are doing this really well can articulate it. I guess it's when people say that they use data all the time and they can't unpack that with me, that and they can't explain what they do. That's a bit of a flag for me. Um, and, and look, that's sometimes really on the individuals, but it's also partly the responsibility of the school. So there's lots of schools that are coming up with data plans now, and I'm trying to shift those plans. This is kind of not really answering your question, Aaron. I apologize, but what I... I've, so data plans are different to data schedules and a plan outlines how a school would like their teachers looking at and using their data. And so people who are doing this really well have got clarity like that from their leadership team and potentially then they've then they've also thought about well what else do I do what's in my practice. So for me when I was teaching in um secondary science classroom I knew that I had the summative assessment tasks I had to collect. I knew how to get and where to get the previous semester results. I would look at PAT reading and um, NAPLAN reading and writing because I needed to make sure my kids in my science class could read and write. And I collected homework, quiz, folio data weekly, and i knew what i did and how i used it and it shifted my practice in the classroom i gave feedback to students on it and i kind of contacted home when i needed to for good stuff and for you know things that weren't going so well so then the secondary part of that so teachers who are doing this really well can talk to that the second part is then that they have their own tracking mechanisms so we've got we've all got some sort of tech dashboards in our schools. So we've got school school management systems, we've got learning management systems, and many schools also have a visualization dashboard. Some schools have to do all of their visualizations themselves. But regardless of the tech that your school buys, somebody who's doing this really well is tracking their own data because they're tracking the formative small bits of data and they're looking at it side-by-side side with the older lag data from standardized assessments and previous results. So lag and lead data is that idea of like lag is the big chunky data that we're trying to change. So in the UK it was the last rate at the end of the year. So that was important to have. But then the idea of lead data is what are all those smaller bits of data we can collect along the way that are going to give us feedback on whether or not we're going to achieve our goal so in a school context it's what are those bits of small data that don't have to be really inconvenient and huge but what are the bits of data that are actually giving me feedback as to whether or not my kids are going to hit their goals um so and i guess the other thing is that that looks really different in different classrooms so for me teaching maths i was tracking quizzes and homework when i was teaching pe I was tracking whether or not kids were bringing their uniform, how engaged they were in their prac lessons and writing samples in their theory lessons. So I had a plan, so I knew what I did and how I did it, but then I had mechanisms in place and for me it was Excel um, to track that information. And, you know, I think back to when I was in primary school in Queensland and I was in a, um education Queensland school and my primary school teachers used to have those like, you know, I don't know whether you remember them or ever had them, but the Manila Mark books and Mm, all student names would be down one side and they'd like chop off the second bit so they could just flip over the pages as the year went through. And it's like we've gone from that and that was data collection, right? It was just done in an analogue way in a book with a pen and a highlighter. Um, That was data collection. But for some people, like some people don't even don't have any records like that, Um, whereas people who are doing this really well, I certainly have those structures in place.
0: Yeah, and I love that. Like you said, we've got that, you know, lag data or all those big things that we're trying to shift. But if we don't do anything in between, it, how do we know we're on track? Like, how yeah. do we know? You know, our I know, particularly in our our settings, that, you know, there's there's things that we want to shift. You know, with NAPLAN plan or check in. You know, scores over time. Mm. But if we're not tracking anything in between. Yeah. Um, what's the point, but I think the biggest thing and you, you know, we've said it all the way through the episode, it's not just tracking for tracking sake. Like I say to my teachers all the time, don't bother collecting it. If you're not going to do anything with it, totally. like if you're just going to import those numbers into a spreadsheet, like there's actually no point. What a waste of your time. Yeah. Um, if we're going to collect data, number one, it needs to be meaningful and we need to do something about it. Yeah, You know, so we've been refining some practices and we, we, at the start of this year, I caused a bit of a fuss because we did commissioned a lot of stuff. Awesome. But my question was, but why are you doing it? Oh, but yeah. we've just always done it. Yeah. Well, I'm no. telling you to stop because you're not, not you're not doing anything. Yeah. You're not doing anything with it. Yeah. So let's stop mm. and let's refine our practices. And now we're starting to implement some new things and people are on board and they're actually keen to do it because they know mm. how they're going to use it. They know yeah what the next steps will be from it yeah because we've gone on that journey of making data meaningful so our teachers are data informed whereas before they were really data collectors
1: yes um <laughs> you know
0: but they weren't data informed they weren't using that data mm. to to take any actions to go forward yeah. um and then it takes that mystery about are we going to hit our goal well we we can be pretty confident like you said we can we can hopefully predict because we've been tracking in between and we're making small changes because we're continually coming back to that data yeah. and analyzing it and going okay that's awesome what next
1: yeah yeah like in primary it's like dibbles data right there's dibbles there's um beginning of the year mid year end of year benchmarks it's mm. like what do you do the middle of the year assessment and go okay well i'm not going to do any other assessments and hopefully the same number of kids hit benchmark at the end or hopefully that improves like we would just we would not do that um and i i love what you were saying about actually let's just really strip it back to what we need and i often say like let's do more action with less like we don't need to collect all of the data sets that we are currently collecting in some schools, and the data plan for me when I work with leaders on constructing a data plan, that's often a really good time where people kind of say, "Oh, it seems like we're doing like four spelling assessments. Why are we doing four spelling assessments?" And to be honest, it's, it's nobody's fault, right? It's it's often the case that new staff have come in, they've brought a program with them because they see the value in it and they think it's really useful. They've introduced it, so they start running it. They don't feel like they're allowed to remove any of the old systems, so all of these things just get stacked on top of each other, and oftentimes schools more collectively hadn't haven't had the chance to, like, zoom out and go, hang on, what do we actually need, <laughs> and mm. let's do that, and let's just get rid of all the other rubbish that we don't need anymore and actually, as you say, actually use the stuff we're collecting Um there's and yeah, I just I love that you were you went there. Like there's literally no point in collecting it if it doesn't do anything to shift your practice or you're not using it with kids.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly in my opinion, that's that's what a data informed teacher is. Exactly what you said. Like they know what they do, they know why, and they have a plan. It's not just I just do it because I, you know, I've always done it. And they're yeah. looking at those systems and going, is this working? And if a system's not working, let's find a system that's going to work yeah but it has definitely. to be data informed whereas the yeah. data is informing something the data yeah. is leading to some kind of action yeah. um for me whether that's like you said official assessments or it's that that your own personal tracking mm-hmm. because you know you can track a lot of stuff but again if you're not making any change or you're not doing anything from it why bother tracking it yeah it's, and there's a
1: there's a perception sometimes that it's um it's really arduous and mm. it doesn't have to be. And even when teaching teams do, say, they look at a writing sample um, or there's a, a class activity that a group of teachers decide they're going to run with their year level, like we don't have to do all the marking. Like, we can collect that lead data. Like this is low-stakes information, but it's handy to help us shift what we do in the classroom and we can give feedback to kids. There's nothing stopping kids self-assessing or peer-assessing. And then they can help Mm. enter the data or collect the data with you. Like in my secondary classroom, I had students entering their own data in my spreadsheet. Um, And this might be a bit confronting for people because it did take me a while to get to this point. But that spreadsheet was up on the board. And it was because we were... Collectively, all in this together, we were all trying to help everybody succeed. And there was kind of no point in anybody lying about it because we we're actually just trying to be real about where we we're at and mm. what we could do. And, you know, and, and so for that class, I was entering very little data. I was checking to make sure they were entering the right stuff, but they were just on my computer. Like, yeah, it's probably breaking a few rules. Um, Sorry, old employer. But I could see what they were doing. They entered it and I wasn't doing it. So there's sometimes this perception that it's really time consuming and something you have to do out of the classroom and out of hours. And I don't believe that it is. I think there's yeah. ways to do it in the classroom.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, it's about you said taking your learners on the journey and building a culture where data is valued and appreciated, but it's also a safe space mm. where we can, we can talk about our goals and we can talk openly. We don't have to pretend or inflate or hide things because we all want each other to succeed. Yeah. Um. So there's a, some important work too, like you said, I think around setting that good culture because totally. you, you obviously could do that because you'd set a great culture with your students And I think it's, it's the same when we do it with our students, but even as staff and as leaders in schools, you know, we have to build the right culture around data um, to go on this journey too, Um, which I'm going to go off a tangent here now that we've (laughs) talked about that. What could people do who are listening to this conversation and maybe it's affirming and they've got people maybe in their faculty or in their teams or that they teach with who just don't embrace data? Mm. have you got any advice or any thoughts on that
1: yeah there's kind of two two ways i guess if you were leading a team and you wanted to open a conversation about it i really believe in the power of having a a group uh, like a set of shared principles about how we use data as a team so i um have a list that I use, but it's things like, you know, all of the data, the data belongs to all of us. They're our students. We use collaborative language. There's no you, your class, that class. You know, it's like these are all of mm-hmm. our kids. That's kind of setting up almost like team norms around the way we consider data as a group. Yeah. Um, some people are really hard to shift in this space. And, and the hardest ones that I have been able to move um, I have done so one-on-one and I've done so actually with some data that really benefits them directly. So one example for me is a pastoral leader who had been a pastoral leader for probably 30 years, so good at what he did, knew the kids so well and he was, you know, one of the things I often hear is, Selena, well, I don't need that. I know kids. I've done this job for so long. There's nothing the data's going to tell me that I don't already know. And it's being able to find those little insights or the anomalies that really pique that person's interest and then share it with them, share it with that person. So for me, I found that a student that he'd been having a lot of trouble with actually had performed exceptionally well in some standardized assessment. So it was in the, the top one or 2% nationally, and it was completely opposite to what we expected for this young person. And so I was able to share that with him and it was really transformational. And he came back and thanked me the next day and was like, I never would have thought that that's what the data would show me about that Mm. kid. So it was a real good news story. But then I um, worked, I was presenting at a school and I had somebody say to me, he said, I don't collect data. I don't believe in it. I work in the workshop with my kids. I know them. I don't, you know, like data doesn't enhance my job. And a few hours into my workshop, he kind of came, I went over to him and he said, Oh, I do, I do have a couple of spreadsheets, but it's not data. And it was absolutely data. <laughs> and and both of those, the two spreadsheets he showed me and shared with me are in my latest book because I, I put them in there to prove to him that it is data. Like there's sometimes an assumption that we're only talking about. NAPLAN or standardized or external assessment when not at all. Like if a kid's competent in a whole list of proficiencies in a workshop, that's data. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to be a number, it doesn't have to be from an yeah. external assessment. Um yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I could clearly talk about this all day and night. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah. No, you're exactly you're exactly right. And I think that idea of setting up norms and things. And one thing I always say, I guess, to teachers who feel like, you know there's a bit of a oh, i really want to move forward in this data space but you know other people around me aren't i i always say to them will will have a go do some tracking yourself and then share that yeah and you know and hopefully people will see that and go oh i really like the way you're doing that mm. um because you can control ultimately you can control what you do in your classroom yeah so do what you can do and then as you share that and you can start to celebrate the success and the growth That's ultimately what people want. And if they can see that you're doing something and you're using some effective systems to track that data and build student growth, people will go, oh, Mm. I might, I might give that a go. I really like that. Um, Yeah,
1: Or even they'll see something and go, I wouldn't do it exactly like that, but mm. this could work. Yeah. This could work for me. yeah. Yeah. And there's plenty of schools that I work with and I encourage schools more broadly to get people to share their practice with their staff because, particularly in a secondary, what might work for a visual arts teacher is going to be completely different to what works for a maths teacher, but getting different voices up in front of the staff mm. and sharing what they're doing and having people see a model that's working and and have and being able to listen to their colleagues that they respect talk about why it's working and why it's been really helpful for them. You're absolutely right. It do, It does shift perceptions and it brings more people on board.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What about for our listeners who, you know, they've been listening and they this has really piqued their interest and they really want to, you know, dive into the rabbit hole that is data and data storytelling? Have you got any um, suggested readings or maybe professional learning that you could recommend?
1: Yeah, so readings-wise, I would say Brent Dyke's book on effective data storytelling is brilliant. I would encourage you to go and read that. As I said, it's more about a presentation, but it's just a great book. Really well written, really fascinating. I think it's fascinating anyway, clearly. Um, the other one for me is Gary Klein's, any of Gary Klein's work on insights. So I'm really curious about what an insight is. So when we look at the data, we notice trends and their patterns, but insights are those things that actually pique our curiosity and the things that differ from what we have expected. And he's written a number of books. Gary Klein is a psychologist He's written a number of books and, um, and papers on it. Um, the other one in terms of research would be Kim Shieldcamp, who's based in Scandinavia. Um, and she's done a lot of work, particularly around data teams. There's, there's not enough research yet coming out around data storytelling in schools. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a hard one to recommend, but Kim Shieldcamp is definitely, um, a place to go. Professional learning, um, it's there's not again there's not a whole lot out there there's things like um specific training specific to that external assessment that you can do so dibbles training for exact for example like read write ink training you can do um asa pat testing training there's systems um a running naplan assessment um, training, that type of thing. I mean, obviously, you should all come and join Data Champions, um, which is my <laughs> year-long program. Um, but, yeah, th- th- again, there's not a lot out there. Um, and that's, I guess, why, yeah, Data Champions is just kind of taken off for me because there's not a whole lot of support. Um, some systems and stuff are doing really good good work in this area, but you've just got to be lucky enough to be in a system, I guess, that's actually leading, leading this work um, well.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And, I mean, we have to also give your books a shout-out because they are definitely worth a read, um, particularly, like you said, your first one. I'm not a numbers person. That's that's a great one. Um, but I love your um, one about building data, like effective data learners yeah. um, and engaging students in data. Mm. Um, so there too, two I would definitely recommend. So don't sell yourself short. Yeah. Um, we'll put the links to your books as well in our um, show notes for anyone yeah. who's interested and wants to get um, get them in their hot little hands, but um, definitely recommend those. And um, you talked a little bit about your Data Champion Program, but how else can our listeners keep in touch with you and keep up to date with the work that you're doing, Selina?
1: Yeah, so my website is selinafisk.com and I send out a very irregular newsletter, um, probably too irregular, but um, you're very welcome to sign up um but on linkedin uh dr selena fisk on linkedin and just selena fisk on insta so yeah i'm on all all the socials and i'm on threads and x and tiktok and all of the things all but the they're the main two yeah
0: <laughs> yeah now we always wrap up our um episodes with some key takeaways so we're thinking about the practical things that we can implement so for me personally I think the thing I'm taking away is just a reminder I think particularly this time of year if we start to look ahead is um redefining our lag and lead Mm. data systems and I I like that mention of a data plan let's have a schedule um but being a bit clearer on what's the plan and how we're going to use those things so that's a really key um takeaway for me in a practical sense um have you got anything maybe some final key takeaways you want to leave our listeners that they can go away and put into practice
1: um for me it's the looking for the good stuff like looking for those opportunities of celebration uh the opportunities to high five kids and uh to make the growth that they're experiencing more tangible and visible to them
0: yeah awesome and i think that's so important and it's probably the thing we don't do when we look at data Mm. Is we don't spend the time going first of all, what can we celebrate?
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah. And look, there's. I know this is like I shouldn't be adding content at this point in the um no, episode, but do it. you know, there's there's schools that are literally like they look at their PAT assessment year on year scale scores and they award the top five improvers in reading over the twelve month period and the top five improvers for maths in the you know uh, per year level. And it's awesome. Often those kids getting up, getting those awards are not your straight A students who are, mm, you know, yeah. usually getting academic awards. There's so much opportunity to do cool stuff like that. So
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm stop talking now. Nah. No. Perfect. Some really great takeaways. Thank you so much for joining us, Selena. It has been such a great conversation.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much, Aaron. It was fun.
0: Oh, appreciate it. So for our listeners, make sure you get in touch with Selena. Check her out on the socials. Follow her work. Check out her Data Champions program and her books. Um, We hope that you have enjoyed this episode. But that is it for episode 35 as we wrap up this uh episode on effectively engaging with data. Um, make sure that you keep in touch with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts and your feedback. If you've got any great data systems or data stories or what you're doing to use data effectively, we would love to hear them. You know how to get in touch with us. You can find us at Teacher Takeaway Podcast on um, X or Twitter, whatever you call it, Instagram and Facebook. So do get in touch with us. We're also planning some really exciting episodes um, and some guests coming up for season four in 2024, which is scary to be thinking about. But if you've got suggestions for future episodes or future guests, we'd love to hear them too. So get in touch again. Selena, thank you for joining us. We will have to have you back again soon.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Aaron.
0: No worries. And that is it for this episode. We'll have you with us again for another episode really soon.